Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 164. It's on exercise variation, and we have the fortune of having the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, live from San Antonio, Texas. What's going on, man? Hey, man. You're welcome for my presence. I, yeah, I'm happy to have it. Although <laughs> minus all of the like preemptive, w- when you're about to say something, there's just a, either a sigh or like a long inhale or other sort of like dad noise that I've been have to edit out. <laughs> it's impressive. It's actually impressive because you haven't reproduced at this point. Uh, and you just, you're already taken to the dad noises. Uh, yeah. Impressive. Nonetheless. I, I love that for me. Uh, okay. Before we get into this week's podcast, uh, a few announcements. One, we've got a bunch of new apparel on the website, new t-shirts, new hoodies, got socks, coffee mugs, the whole thing. Like if you want to rep barbell medicine, in some way, shape, or form, just go over to the website. We got we got apparel there. The new Thrasher logo thing. All right, so this is funny. I just got back into motocross, right? And I was like, how can I make this more barbell medicine-y? And I was like, okay, I can get graphics made for the bike that say barbell medicine. Two, I you know I need to protect myself from the elements when I'm not racing. So in between races, I need to get an easy up, like a little pop tent. You know, not pop, little, but a pop tent. I can get the logo on there. And so, okay, so this is funny. I went onto the website. Uh, they're located in Carlsbad. And I custom designed this like tent. And then there's like a back, uh, a wall, like on one side of the thing. And you can have a logo printed there. So I submit the logos, whatever. And instantly I get a phone call. And this guy's like, hey, just wanted to make sure that you have the rights to use this logo. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's it's my company, it's Barbell Medicine. He's like, wait, you're Jordan Barbell Medicine? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And he's like, oh, I'm running the Power Building One template. Like, I just wanted to say. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I was like, cool. So can I get like a discount or like um, <laughs> <laughs> discount and shipping? He said, I can't do that. I'm like, all right, well, thanks anyway. So any in any case, uh, all of our, our apparel is available on the website. Check that out and link uh, in the description below. Also, we have a new seminar date added. Uh, so Austin and I will be in Philadelphia in mid-March for our traditional two-day seminar, barring any, you know, cataclysmic increase in case any, positivity, any, hospitalizations, and death. Any, any, any cataclysmic world event. How about that? <laughs> sure. Yeah, just period, right? We've got like tsunamis. We've got <laughs> pandemics. Jesus. Uh, and then our pain and rehab team, Drs. Derek Miles and Michael Ray and crew will be in Portland, Oregon the first week of March. And now they've added Greenville, North Carolina. Have you been at Greenville? I have not. Have you? I I have been to a Greenville, South Carolina, and it just seems odd to me that neighboring states are like, yeah, we're going to have the same, we're going to have the same name. <laughs> Seems like, like a setup for people to go to the wrong place. <laughs> right, right, right. Like you plug it into your Google Maps or whatever, and then you you end up in the wrong state. Or maybe it's the same. Maybe because the, there's like a Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, True. Kansas. Are they on the border? Hmm. And is there a rivalry, like a rift? If only there was some way to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah, yeah. Join us next time for the <laughs> Medicine Geography podcast. All right. So we're going to talk about exercise selection. And within that exercise variation is an interesting topic because it's actually where the rubber meets the road. Um, you know, we, we'd like to talk about programming theory quite often because people really seem to enjoy when we opine eloquently about what programming styles or approaches may work better or worse uh, for some folks. And that gives people you know, kind of insight or 
peek behind the curtain or under the hood um, for, you know, why our templates are designed certain ways or why we advocate certain programming styles. Um, but still, it's a little bit more abstract uh, when talking that way than, you know, actually picking exercises to plug into a program. So to start, physical activity is defined as movement of the body created by muscles that increases energy use above resting levels. Exercise or exercise training is a subset of physical activity that is planned, repetitive, and structured to improve or maintain health or fitness, uh, whereas non-exercise activity refers to activities of daily life, occupation, or involuntary spontaneous movements like fidgeting, twitching, maintaining posture, stuff like that. An exercise program can be defined by all of the structured physical activity components that an individual participates in over a given period of time. These elements include the exercise mode or type, exercise selection, intensity, volume, frequency, duration, which we'll discuss later on in this podcast. An exercise program can be created prospectively, so beforehand, uh, for an individual to follow, or it can be recalled retrospectively. In a perfect world, the exercise program organizes the relevant training variables in a manner that matches the goals, physiological capacity, current fitness level, and available resources of the individual in order to improve specific elements of fitness and, ideally, health. Uh, from a health perspective, which should be an important consideration for all exercise programs, we want to meet and ideally exceed the current physical activity guidelines for adults. So these guidelines include both resistance training and conditioning. Uh, for resistance training, we want to hit all the major muscle groups through a fairly large range of motion at an intensity that's somewhat challenging, i.e. it approaches failure somewhere in that four to five reps in reserve sort of range or feels uncomfortable at least twice a week. For conditioning, which is an umbrella term that refers to both aerobic and anaerobic sort of uh, you know exercise uh, components, they can be moderate or vigorous intensity activity, and the idea is to meet or exceed 500 to 1,000 minutes per week. So that's 150 to 300 minutes of a four to six met activity, that's moderate intensity per week, or 75 to 150 minutes of a six plus met activity per week, uh, that would be vigorous intensity. So within an exercise program, exercise selection can be defined as a specific exercise or movement performed by the individual and the specifics of the exercise, such as the range of motion, tempo, energy systems, and other specified aspects of the movement pertaining to the setup and or completion of the task. So for example, if you had a 300 tempo high bar back squat below parallel, that describes a squat, a back squat that is performed to below parallel depth with the bar in the high bar position using a three second or three count depending on which hill of the or which side of that argument uh, you live on, a three-second eccentric downward phase. Uh, so that's when the muscles are getting longer. Uh, exercise selection can get more or less verbose depending on the context, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, like you said, you can get super verbose and and detailed and and specific. Although you know that should that that level of detail and exercise prescription should kind of mirror or or parallel the degree of specificity that is needed for that particular individual's goal outcomes, right? So we're not taking gen pop people who just want to, you know, when you ask them what their goals are, and they say, I just want to get a little healthier. And we're giving them, you know, 15 qualifiers to their, <laughs> to their, to their squat type pattern movement, uh, when they're getting started with training. Whereas if we have somebody who is training towards a very particular goal task, and um, there are certain unique considerations at play with them, perhaps like we'll, we'll get into a lot of this, whether it's strength limitation or conditioning uh, uh, issues or pain or rehab kind of context where we will start to tack on more and more qualifiers, depending on what we're trying to get the person to do or what we're trying to get out of the person. Yeah. I remember when I first got into this game, 
the, the strength training game. I would like read these programs on various websites and it would be like single legged, you know, RDL with kettlebell three, two, zero tempo. And I'm like, God, that's stupid. Like, just like, why do you have all this stuff here? And now I realize like, well, if I were writing an article for like a large, you know, publication or widely read publication, I, m- I might actually err on the side of providing too many qualifiers unless I got to write a paragraph about, <laughs> you know, these qualifiers uh, or like a little sub sub note. But yeah, I agree. Like in the beginning, I really have a significant amount of descriptive terms surrounding the exercise, mainly because I don't think that it matters that much. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to, you know, get paralyzed but like analyze like, well, is that a two oh oh tempo or three oh tempo? Is it a count? Is it a second? It's like just, you know, squat if, in this case, if they want to squat. Yeah. And if you want to do a pause squat, pause wherever. I, I mean, yes, I have preferences here, but like just getting started, my main preference is that you enjoy your training and that you'll be training that sets you up for long-term like training adherence and success. And I don't know that it matters how long you pause, where you pause, <laughs> You know, do you squat with the bar in a high bar position, low bar position, or even if you squat at all, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, I think we agree on that. Um, okay, so we t- that's exercise selection, like how we describe them. And then exercise variation is just a different type of exercise that is, by definition, somewhat related to this other exercise. And typically, when we talk about exercise variations, we're talking about it in reference to a prioritized movement or some sort of high importance movement or a competitive exercise. Like if uh, you fancy yourself a power lifter, talking about squat, bench, deadlift, or if you are really interested in maximal strength performance in those lifts, so you're like a power lifter by proxy, even if you don't compete, then those are like your reference exercises. Or if you were an Olympic weightlifter, it'd be a clean and jerk and a snatch. Um, this actually brings up an interesting kind of argument. Like if you are not a competitor in any of barbell sport or any any sport, So you're just training for general health and you don't really care about one RM strength performance. Like what is exercise variation? Just like the amount of different exercises that you do. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably how I would view it. Yeah. Have you read Bondarchuk's transference of training book? I have not. There's like so many different definitions in there. And I, and I, I don't think the book is bad by any, any stretch. I just think that I mean, I listed these things. There's a general preparatory exercise and special preparatory exercise and special developmental exercises, but there's the definitions are not sufficient enough to like actually define the thing. It's just kind of like, okay, exercises that use same muscles or different muscles or same system. It's like, I don't know if we understand really what you meant by these because it's like a translation because a lot of exercises are going to use the same muscles, even if they're substantially different. Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked about in other contexts how, you know, humans uh, attempt to build an understanding of things typically through reductionism. And sometimes reductionism requires by necessity somewhat arbitrary breakdowns of, you know, uh, into various categories. And that's kind of how I view this. Obviously, like, sure, there are some fundamental differences between some of these things as they relate to somebody's goals. But at the same time, these categories that you're listing that, that come from that text pretty arbitrary distinctions, I think, as far as just like getting humans to contract their muscles in different ways go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even when you're talking about like energy systems, right? Like a lactic and different anaerobic, like anaerobic glycolysis and, you know, aerobic, 
uh, uh, not binary. In <laughs> no, they're always going all the time. Like yes. all of them. <laughs> yeah. And people are like, whoa, mind blown. So I can't really use different energy systems. They're like, well, kind of. Depends how, like, again, reductionist you want to get. That is for another podcast. Uh, so in any case, I, I think we we're talking about exercise variation. We we're just talking about different movements that are somewhat related. And the similarity between one movement and another determines its specificity. And, and basically, the more related movements are based on their range of motion, contraction types, the muscle lengths at various positions of the movement, uh, velocity, movement velocity, et cetera, kind of determines how related they are and how much they're likely to transfer from one exercise uh, to another, one movement to another. Um, and this, you can apply this in resistance training. So like a back squat and a front squat are very, very similar based on their contraction types. It's an eccentric contraction followed by a concentric contraction. Their movement velocity, it's about the same. The joint angles are fairly similar, although not identical, obviously. All these sort of things are, are, are related. You can do this in conditioning exercises too. So running and cycling, you're thinking on uh, at face value, you're like, eh, they're not really related. It's like, well, they have similar amounts of active muscle mass and it's this, almost the same muscle mass, primarily the legs. While yes, the trunk and upper extremities are being used. Are they being used in different ways? Yes. Are there different joint angles? Yes. But if you were thinking about like, what's more likely to transfer for a runner, cycling or arm ergometry, right? Where you're on the thing pedaling with your arms. You're like, well, clearly cycling. You're like, well, and then you ask why, you're like, because it uses the legs too. And you're like, bingo, good. Now you understand this theory, their principle of specificity. So we would expect that in a, a program that we would deem high, uh, to have high, very, a high amount of variation or variability uh, that the, different exercises included would relate to this priority movement or, you know, competitive movement or some sort of movement we're placing a higher importance on, but be significantly different than it in, in, in one or more ways, whether that's range of motion, tempo, velocity, uh, you know, contraction type, et cetera. And in, in exercise programs that have a low amount of variation, they'd all be the same. So, uh, just again, to use an example, if you were trying to train a squat pattern or your legs, quote unquote, we're doing legs today, and, and you had three exercise slots per week to train your legs, and it was squat, 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 all the same way, that would be an example of a low variation sort of exercise program. Versus if you had squat, leg press, deadlift, that would be a high uh, or higher variation um, exercise program. The whole point here is that we talk about exercise variety a lot, and I wanted to kind of further flesh out like why exercise variation, where the data stands currently, and kind of our practical implementation of exercise variation. We could do a whole hour on the said principle and the principle of specificity and like opining eloquently on like, well, does the two count pause squat transfer better than the pin squat? It's like, that's not this podcast, right? Yeah, also, I would... Uh... I would not be present for that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would just be me arguing against myself for an hour. And a half. But rather, rather we kind of wanted to cover some of the background on like why we think exercise variety is important and then how to practically kind of do it or at least assess different programs and their exercise variety. So Austin, you've probably been more vocal about like the increase in your training programs, exercise variation, like with, without 
recapitulating all the data you know about this, what's been your kind of personal experience with increasing exercise variety? Uh, yeah, so I think that when I first started getting into, like, I would say physical activity in general, I was a kid and a multi-sport athlete, as we've talked about before. I played baseball and swam and soccer, and and uh, uh, at some point along the way, <coughs> while I was in high school, started doing a bit of strength training, although neither me nor the people guiding me had any idea what I was doing, but I kind of view that as an, a, an important phase that is, like, worthy of, of note because it inherently involved lots of variation, um, both between the different sports and even like within, within the sports, say like within swimming, I was not a, a particular stroke specialist until very late in my swimming career. I was training all four strokes and, and doing a bunch of other stuff, even outside the pool at the time we were doing runs and, and, and strength training and, and various other kinds of activities. So I'd say like the, 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 the first say 15 years practically of my like physical activity career involved very high amounts of variation. Uh, and then when I, at, at, uh, at the subsequent point started to specialize a little bit more or, um, focus a bit more on strength training in particular, barbell training in particular, and then eventually like competitive powerlifting, uh, for the first, uh, uh part of that training career, it involved relatively low variation, I would say. Uh, there was a pretty substantial focus on the competitive movements. Um, and I did not spend very much time doing, uh, like very much machine work or isolation stuff, or I didn't touch dumbbells for almost, you know, years <laughs> up front. So things were pretty, pretty focused. Uh, and I experienced shortly thereafter, uh, experienced numerous, setbacks in various areas. I've talked about some of this before with respect to um, uh, tendinopathy experiences over time. I've, I've had more of those. Some people experience, you know, back pain or various other joint pains or whatever the case is over the course of life and physical activity. Um, I seem to experience a bit more tendinopathy, uh, which, you know, sometimes still flare up even, even to this day here and there. But uh, that was a that was something that I experienced a fair amount of, and I had to kind of try to figure out how to work through and work around that. In particular, the the quadriceps tendons, the some of the tendons around each of my elbows, and things like that. And so, but over time, as I learned and read and got more into the pain stuff, and got more experience as a coach, and bounced ideas off of other people, including we did off each other, and uh, got our rehab guys involved, I started to open up kind of mentally towards the idea that. Um, you know, we hear a lot like, if you want to get better at squatting, you have to squat more. And so uh, the, the, the implication there is you have to do the exact goal task over and over and over again, indefinitely. Uh, and so that was kind of uh, buried in my mind as like a, a fundamental principle, but I had to like rip that, I had to, I had to extract that and open my mind to the possibility that um, there are lots of ways to get better at a particular task. And there's probably um, a sweet spot for a particular individual at a particular, you know, uh, a moment in time in their training career for a certain amount of training variation. And that might fluctuate up and down depending on a whole host of factors that we'll get into. But the more I opened up my mind to that concept of more variation is not, I'm not like wasting my time by doing something that's not the actual goal competitive movement. 
the, the more I came to accept that and the more variation I started to introduce, not like wild amounts of variation, but fair amount, which we'll, again, we'll, we'll talk about a little more. I started to experience uh, numerous positive outcomes from this, both in terms of adaptation, mitigating aches and pains, uh, seemingly, you know, anecdotal, my own uh, reduction in injury risk over this period of time, psychological uh, kind of benefits as far as the approach to training, decreases in training, monotony. Um, you can like enjoy hitting PRs in different ways or different types of PRs and things like that. So there's a, a whole bunch of positive benefits that I feel like I have experienced as a result of that and have uh, anecdotally also observed similar sorts of things among my trainees, particularly those who I'm able to convince to break away from a like little to no movement variation uh, paradigm in their own training. Yeah. Yeah. I view this as like a pendulum, right? So like on the one side of the pendulum, you have this what we could term hyper-specific sort of training, like you're only going to do the movements that you want to get better at or the exercise modes. If you're an endurance athlete, like you just want to run. If you're a runner, just want to cycle. If you're a cyclist, you just want to arm ergometer. If you are an arm ergometer <laughs> competitor. Um, and, and then the other side is like wild amounts of variation. And, and I, I think just as you said uh, eloquently, the sweet spot, there's a sweet spot with a certain amount of variation that results in the training adaptations that you're seeking, you know, at a given time, at a given stage in your, you know, training career, et cetera. So I've actually oscillated, like I, I started like very, very diverse with like high amounts of exercise variation, probably too much, and then went hyper-specific and then have gone to, you know, crazy amounts of variation as well uh, with respect to CrossFit um, when I did that experiment. Although, can we call it an experiment now? Can we just like call it like failure? <laughs> like, let's, just, let's just, I mean, I, I guess it just depends on the goals. Like what were my goals? So I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I've kind of, kind of been all over the place uh, during my training career. And I think these are some lessons learned and we've got some evidence to kind of support our current practices. So speaking of the current evidence on why exercise variation, uh, yeah, at present, the best data we have suggests that exercise variation is beneficial for adherence, performance with respect to strength, hypertrophy, cardiorespiratory fitness, and then also injury risk reduction. And then on, on that last bit, if you reduce your risk to injury of injury, you have a longer, more, you know, injury-free training period that probably sets your, you up for success, not only with respect to adherence, because you like don't stop training, right? Uh, but then you can, you know, stack gains. I think there's a wrapper out there probably using that somewhere. Instead of stacking paper, you're stacking gains. So we need to find that person, get them on the podcast, have them wrap a few bars. Uh, so let's start with adherence. Basically, the definition of adherence is the extent to which a person's behavior or behaviors corresponds with the agreed recommendations from a professional or other, other one intervention. It includes the initiation and implementation, in this case, of an agreed upon exercise plan or physical activity plan. Um, the thought here is that if you get a person to participate in the decision-making process with respect to exercise selection or exercise mode, uh, so the type of exercise that person's doing for like cardiorespiratory fitness training um, and resistance training, that that improves their sort of self-efficacy and, and self-management. Effectively, they're able to play an active role, a managerial role in their exercise program. They feel like they have more kind of attachment to the plan. They're more likely to do it because, hey, they said they, they said they do it and kind of gave them some input here. 
Uh, and we have some data to support that. So on average, like training motivation and session, uh, the amount of sessions that a person uh, completed was is higher in individuals with greater exercise variation. And this kind of increases when you have people play an active role in choosing the exercise variation. So this is a really interesting study, actually. <laughs> they had uh, one group who had exercises randomly chosen from a computerized database of 80 different exercises on an app. And they compared them to uh, this other group who had who did the same uh, 12 uh, or 13 exercises over and over and over again. And the training motivation was notably higher with the 80 different exercises chosen from an app. Now, that's not the way I would do it, like have this hopper, you know, where you're just kind of like randomly getting exercises. I would rather ask the person like, hey, what kind of exercises can you do? Are you willing to do and that you have access uh, to do right? If a person's like, I'd love to do a safety squat bar squat with chains to a box and you're like, oddly specific, but okay. And then <laughs> it's like, do you have a safety squat bar? And they're like, no. Like, okay. So <laughs> let's, let's kind of see if there's something else that you'd be willing to do. Um, when I am working with a new person, so like I get their client intake form and I, I'll usually have some conversation with them about what exercises they'd like to do or, or, and performance goals and sort of limitations. Um, and I, I generally just ask them bluntly, like, what exercises would you prefer to do? What exercises do you not want to do? And sometimes I'll explore that latter one. If they're like, I don't want to do front squats, for example, it's like, oh, well, why? I'm just more curious. Is it more like a trainability thing? Like they're like, I, my front rack position is terrible or it hurts my collarbones, like me personally, or they're just like, I don't like them. Or if it says it hurts their knees and I'm like, well, if it, if it says, if you're saying that it hurts your knees, I'd probably like to explore that a little further mm -hmm. to try to reduce the hesitation or uh, anxiety around that particular movement, even though I don't think I ever need to test your one RM front squat or like prepare you for a one RM front squat. I just like you to have more I movement guess, options. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How do you, how do you do it? You do it a similar way. You just ask people straight up, like, yo, what kind of exercises do you want to do? I kind of get us, uh, I'd probably start with their exercise history. And sometimes you can just deduce a lot of things from, from hearing that in terms of their tendencies over time, the kind of things that they've gravitated towards, the kind of things they've gravitated away from. And then, yeah, anything they've gravitated away from or they feel like they can't do or don't want to do, I do just kind of delve into that a little bit more because um, pretty often it's due to some misconceptions or th some things that I would prefer to, to challenge uh, so that we, again, give this person more movement options so that they feel um, kind of less like a like a robot that can only move in very particular ways because in fact some of this stuff does end up translating into their normal life right so if they have this idea that you know they can't you know let their knees go past their toes or something it's like well what if you're in a situation where that becomes necessary to do in your in your real life um and so you know giving people more confidence in their bodies and things like that is is part of the reason why i might poke a little bit at some of those apprehensions but i also am just observing their response and and if they get you know real wound up and defensive or something over that, then I'll say, okay, maybe I'll come back to that, you know, over time in the future, maybe I'll find a different way to kind of challenge that, but, uh, and then might lean a little bit more heavily into the things that they have stated that they enjoy up front. And then sometimes, of course, we don't really get any clear preferences from somebody. They might not have a lot of things uh, already established. They might not have a ton of exercise experience in the past. They might just be new to this whole physical activity thing. 
in which case, you know, we can choose anything and we can uh, uh, kind of inception them into whatever beliefs we want them to have about exercise and movement and its safety. So, yeah, yeah we're almost trying to, we're giving them, giving them some constraints because again, we want to train all the major muscle groups through a fairly large range of motion in a way that's loadable, uh, you know, intensity wise where they get somewhere near failure, you know, four to five reps ish close to failure, uh, feeling kind of uncomfortable. Uh, so there are some exercises that maybe don't or aren't loadable in that way, uh, or don't, you know, the collection of exercises that the person selects does not train all of the major muscle groups or so giving them some constraints. Right. And when I was talking with, um, uh, uh, the food medic, uh, on, on her podcast, I was like, yeah, you'd like to train all the major muscle groups using multi-joint or compound exercises, uh, if you have access to them, um, multiple times per week at an intensity, it kind of makes you feel kind of uncomfortable. And that's kind of like the constraints you're starting at. So you'd want to have a squat type movement, right? Simultaneous hip and knee flexion. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, that, that, that occurs in an axial loaded sort of manner. You'd want to have some sort of horizontal and vertical pushing exercise. And we, those terms don't have to be like taken literally, like it doesn't have to be a strict over, overhead press and, you know, horizontal bench press. It could be, you know, uh, an incline bench press or dumbbell bench press or machine press or whatever. Uh, you know, it could be uh, the same sort of thing for a horizontal bench press and you'd want to do some a similar sort of thing for a pulling or rowing type exercise, some horizontal ish and vertical ish kind of rowing type exercise. I mean, these are all just arbitrary movement categories. And when I'm looking at like a person's self-selected exercise, I'm like, all right, are we checking all these boxes? If so, I feel pretty good about that. And that's all taken, um, uh, almost, uh, or as the priority. And then the secondary sort of aim would be a performance. So, yeah, it's, it's like if a person wants to improve their squat, their bench press and their deadlift, like, okay, cool. I have a lot of experience there, but let's make sure we're not leaving out anything else when we're trying to develop this broad base of physical development. Um, yes, there are times to specialize. We'll cover that at the end of this podcast, like what do at that point, but you know, for a general strength development or general strength and conditioning program, you want to make sure that you're not leaving anything out. Um, you don't want any holes in your game to the extent that, uh, it again, meets and exceeds ideally the physical activity guidelines. So do you need to get a power lifter to have the capacity to do a 30 RM, you know, at a substantially higher weight? Well, no, not really, but you still want some proficiency in the energy systems, you know, uh, for a set of 10 or 15, and you want some cardiorespiratory capacity to, uh, you know, do a graded <laughs> incline, uh, treadmill test, but they don't need to run a marathon. Um, similarly, if you have a marathoner, they don't need to have, a crazy one RM back squat or deadlift, but some, you know, strength development is going to be important for them. So in any case, uh, improving the adherence, uh, we do by setting some constraints on the individual and kind of asking them what they want to do, maybe exploring that a little further. Um, that's one benefit of having a higher amount of exercise variation. Um, and you might have to explore that with people who come from training programs that are very limited because the underlying thought process or belief system um, may be that if anything is not a squat bench or deadlift or clean and jerk or snatch, it's, you know, not useful. It's like, well, I don't believe that to be true. And particularly from a performance standpoint, which we'll talk about now. So strength performance, 
usually when we're talking about strength, in almost all cases, when we're talking about strength, there has to be a reference or test movement or test task where it's like, this is the exercise. Here are the uh, points of performance for that task, meaning that if you're doing a squat, for example, it has to be done below parallel with the bar on your back, if it's a back squat, uh, for a 1RM or 3RM or 5RM. There's got to be, you know, context here, right? So there's a reference or test task. That's the priority. The point, the point being that, you know, you hear, what are your, you you know, if if people are asked, what are your goals for this training program or this strength program? They say, oh, I just want to get stronger. That is a insufficiently specific answer because you'd have to decide how am I going to measure if this is actually working? And so that's kind of what you're getting at is I need a particular thing that I'm going to measure to determine whether you are actually getting stronger. That doesn't necessarily have to be something that you train. We've talked about this before in other, you know, contexts uh, where, you know, you'll, in a research study, there'll be two groups that like front squat or back squat, and then they get tested on a leg press, which is kind of an interesting design, but you need something, you need to pick something that as that is the reference exercise. That's kind of the, the point that you're making here. Just like getting stronger, quote unquote, with like a big hand wave around it, isn't really a, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, strength is force production measured in a specific context. So you just got to know what the specific context is you're measuring, uh, you know, uh, up to adequately determine if someone is getting stronger. So programs with increased amounts of variation, exercise variety, seem to improve strength performance uh, via improvements in motor learning and muscle coordination. So effectively, people learn to become proficient in the task. They get more efficient, so less bar path deviation, higher velocities, uh, et cetera. Uh, That's the motor learning component. And muscle coordination, basically the ability to contract muscles uh, in an efficient way to produce force to complete the task. Uh, so that, that tends to be improved with more variety. And it, basically you're giving people more strategies to complete the task, not only under like fatigue states, like when they're you know tired or at the end of a set or whatever, but even under fresh states, they just have more options if they happen to get a little bit out of position or they happen to, you know, go a little lower or, you know, a little higher. It's like, well, they've had exposure to so many different varieties that they can figure out a way to successfully complete the task. And, you know, the body's this complex system of many different interacting parts. And this motor coordination is not localized in any one particular part, but emerges from a complex series of interactions of all the different parts, which we get to expose via additional exercise variety. Um, we have data that suggests that experimental, uh, suggesting that um, early movement variability, so inclusion of more exercise variety, particularly early on in training, improves motor learning efficiency, so how quickly people learn movements. And again, it allows them to explore this wide variety of different movement options. So not only do people learn how to do the exercise better with more efficiency, uh, with increased exercise uh, variety, they get to figure out the style of movement that best serves their current fitness abilities, uh, levers, you know, and all sorts of unique factors that make the person an individual. If they never get exposed to these things, they never get to kind of figure that out. Um, and you know, as far as data showing, yo, these people actually got stronger. The data is not great here. It, it's effectively, you, you have to have two groups, um, or maybe even three groups, you know, just straight up control that doesn't exercise. <laughs> Like, right. The second group does all the same exercises for an extended period of time. Um, and then the other group had works at a similar intensity as the group exercising, but has more exercise variation. And to my knowledge, there's only been 
two two studies that address this. One showed uh, uh, increased strength, so increased improvement in 1RM with increased uh, exercise variation, and the other showed no change. And we were like, well, <laughs> why are you making this big, this big hubbub? And I'm like, well, the data again here is not great. These are relatively short-term studies, relatively small groups, and the underlying mechanisms here of motor learning suggest a pretty substantial potential improvement. Um, I don't feel so strongly about this that I'd go, you know, on record saying you must have high amounts of exercise variety to get stronger. There are certainly a lot of different ways to get strong. And the shorter the study period is, the more likely a very specific, hyper-specific, low exercise variety sort of approach is likely to work. So the fact that even in these short-term studies, there's no advantage to doing this, you know, low variety type of exercise program, uh, there's no advantage to that. That kind of even further, to me, supports the role of exercise variety. If it's not doing any worse in short term, oh man, imagine what it's going to do in the long term, especially yeah. with this motor learning stuff. Yeah, that's a hypothesis, I suppose. I think I agree with the other thing you just uh, said towards the end there, that um, the duration of time that we're looking at this issue over will influence the answer. So if somebody if somebody came up to either of us, I suspect, and said, I, how do I increase my one rep max bench press as much as possible in 10 days? I'm probably going to have you doing a lot of regular bench press singles, probably on most days, maybe all, maybe all 10 of them in anticipation of that test uh, date, because my thought process is we have a very short period of time to get you as good as we can at this task. And uh, there is a relatively low risk of precipitating like a major, you know, overuse injury syndrome from you in this very short period of time. Uh, whereas if somebody tells me I want to get my bench, my one rep max bench pressed as high as possible over the next decade, uh, I would definitely provide a very different answer. I'd be using a lot more variation. I'd be tackling this from a lot more angles, including some exposure to, you know, one rep bench presses, some higher rep stuff, and then some other non regular bench pressing exercises altogether. And all of this stuff would fluctuate over time based on how you're responding, how you're feeling, psych psychological factors, motivation, things like that. Um, and so that's where there's a ton more room for, for variation. Yeah, you just get to build a bigger base of the pyramid, the physical yep. development period, and then apply that specifically. Although, I don't, do you remember this? The John Bros, uh, his, his like- Squat every day. Well, right. So he was like, imagine <laughs> if someone held your family ransom and said that you have four weeks- yeah. <laughs> to increase your squat 1RM, what would you do? And it's like, I'd probably squat a lot of like maximal singles. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that works. Uh, certainly. Uh, the daily max stuff can be useful. It looks like uh, based on the research data we have and then also anecdotal stuff, this works better for shorter periods of time than longer periods of time. And the best data we have on this is mostly in trained athletes, not necessarily people new. So the newer the person is, the more variation I'd like, I'd, I'd, I'd want to include to again, give them additional strategies, improve motor, motor learning, et cetera, and prevent those overuse injuries, which, cause if you had a person who's new to training and you're like, yeah, we're going to do this daily circa max sort of training for, for two weeks, it's like, well, that may in fact precipitate an overuse injury because you have no base. Build the big base. You can do a lot of, I wouldn't. You know, I'm going to call it, I'm going to say weird stuff. It's not weird, 
like we've had, I, with this bench everyday thing I've, we, I've had multiple people do, but they've all been trained folks. And again, it's all always for short periods of time. So, okay, that's strength. Hypertrophy, the which is an increase in muscle uh, cross-sectional area. The idea that increased variation would improve hypertrophy originated from these mechanistic studies where they studied surface EMG. Basically, they put a bunch of like electrical sense uh, detecting sensors on the surface of the skin, and that detects muscle excitation levels, not muscle activation or motor unit recruitment, but muscle excitation. Um, so they've done those studies and then functional MRI studies, which they look at the brain and look at areas of the brain that light up. Uh, and it indicates that different exercises may activate the same muscle or muscle group. So like the squat and the leg press, uh, and it may promote different distinct motor unit recruitment patterns. So the idea would be that if you do different exercises, you're getting a different a way to activate and recruit these muscle fibers. And maybe that's beneficial. We should say that these are surrogate measures of muscle activity. We're not looking at like actual muscle level data that's super, super accurate. Um, and they are not always associated with different outcomes. And by that, I mean like the idea is that if you do an exercise that has a higher EMG value than another, you would expect that the results of the higher EMG uh, exercise would you'd get you more hypertrophy or more strength. But the data on that is not great. So it looks like in general that you need to have very high amounts of difference, high uh, magnitude differences between one exercise and another when it comes to EMG to actually get a difference in hard outcomes that we care about like hypertrophy and strength. So for example, there is a small amount of difference between the front squat and the high bar back squat when it comes to quadriceps EMG values. And then when you look at programs measuring quadriceps muscle cross-sectional area after a number of weeks of high bar squatting or front squatting, there's almost no difference in whole muscle hypertrophy. And you're like, but the EMG values are different. It's like, yeah, but they're marginally different. If you compared a front squat versus a bench press with leg drive, like, wow, the EMG different is, mar is marked, right? And so you then you see, would uh, expect to see a large difference. So that's the way I currently understand EMG data, like when there are small differences between muscle or EMG, <clears throat> EMG values with similar exercises. I'm like, yeah, they're probably about the same then when it comes to like generating hypertrophy uh, or generating strength. But that's the that's what we're talking about when we say like these surrogate measures of surface EMG or functional MRI. Uh, again, similar to strength, there's not great data on this, but that's kind of where this idea came from. Um, Again, one study showed that having greater exercise variation increased hypertrophy of two of the four quadriceps muscles when compared to reduced variation, as long as the relative intensity and volume were the same. But the whole muscle hypertrophy of the quadriceps was the exact same. So if you were looking for like, yo, I want to get my vastus medialis as big as possible, or my vastus medialis and rectus femoris, two of the four muscles of the quadriceps, yeah, having a higher amount of exercise variation may help you do that, may help you do that. But if you compared uh, the whole muscle hypertrophy of leg extensions versus squats, for example, you may not actually see a difference. Just looking at the quadricep as a whole muscle versus individual muscle muscle bellies. Um, anything to add to that? Yeah, I awesome. think that there. I think that the other caveat is when you say more 
exercise variation, I think that the particular variations you select is going to make an impact there as far as hypertrophy. If, you know, hypertrophy bodybuilding is, is your jam, if that's what you're after, um, then there can be some rationale for selecting different exercises that kind of, um, provide a stimulus to muscles in different ways, because this is, uh, re some regional hypertrophy differences have been shown in certain contexts, again, depending on the exercise you select. So as you mentioned, for example, the squat compared to a leg extension, uh, they do have differential effects on the rectus femoris in particular because yeah. of the way that the joints move in each of those, uh, exercises. Um, you actually get a little more of the rectus femoris with the leg extension compared to what you get out of a squat. Whoa. Uh, but if that matters to you, I think that, you know, that, that, that effectively never impacts my, um, exercise selection in my own programming, but that's because I have a selection bias and the types of clients that I'm working with, like what their, what their goals are and things like that. Um, and, and if I am to program leg extensions alongside a squat in, in with, for these folks, it's usually not for that particular reason. It's usually for other reasons to get some additional stimulus to the area with, you know, super low to no fatigue on the, the back. So I can get them doing more deadlifting and other, another kind of rationalizations, I suppose, for, for a strategy like that. Um, but the, the, you can't just assume, oh, I'm just going to do a bunch more exercises and that's necessarily going to generate more hypertrophy because the, in that context, the actual exercises you select and how they kind of hit the target muscle to use some bodybuilder lingo is going to have, uh, potentially some, some, uh, significant impact there, but how significant that is, is going to vary depending on which ones you pick and who you are and how you respond to training. Yep. Yeah. So in addition to those individual characteristics, the other big part of the exercise variety sort of calculus here has to do with the fatigue from each exercise that you select. So yeah, leg extension and squat, you know, may have similar effect on the whole mass of the quadriceps, for example, but how many sets of leg extensions can you do to generate the same amount of fatigue, you know, as squats, you, you can do a lot more. And so all of that additional mechanical tension and, you know, fatigue byproducts that, that stimulate, you know, muscle growth, you can do that with a lot more, you can do a lot more volume on leg extensions than, than squats before you actually get so tired or so, you know, centrally fatigued, you can't persist. Uh, okay. Moving on to cardiorespiratory fitness. I know this is the barbell medicine podcast, but you know, Hey, we care about your cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, this is interesting, um, and I think it's a, a interesting way to 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 think about a performance training for the endurance athlete. Basically, the underlying premise here is that skeletal muscles adapt specifically to a given task over a period of time, and there's overlap between tasks using similar muscles. So, again, back to that running and cycling example, there are cross adaptations or transference or overlap uh, between running and cycling because, again, they both use the lower extremities. Uh, primarily, and yes, there's some trunk and upper extremity involvement as well. However, these might not be equally bi-directional. So one may transfer to the other uh, more than the other transfers back. Um, so for example, it's thought right now that running actually transfers more to cycling than cycling transfers to running. That's based on one study. Uh, I've linked that in the description below, but pretty interesting stuff. The, the specificity of the exercise mode is highlighted when the peripheral, aka the, aka the muscular adaptations occur without significant uh, central cardio or which are cardiovascular adaptations. So for example, 
a, the VO2 max, which is the amount of oxygen you can consume maximally in a given period of time, is peripherally limited, so limited at the muscle, by the mitochondrial and capillary densities. Um, so you, if you have, if you're doing an exercise, a conditioning exercise that doesn't challenge that, it is likely to transfer over less uh, to an exercise um, that does challenge those things. So effectively, that's the arm ergometry comparison we made earlier. Because doing an arm ergometry does not challenge the peripheral sort of muscular adaptations of the legs, it's unlikely that the arm ergometer is going to transfer over well to cycling or running. Doesn't mean there's no transference, just less. It's just less. And so this has actually been studied. Uh, so people trying to get better uh, at running, for example, have done running only versus stair climbing or run plus cycling. They all have similar transferences to the VO2 max that was measured by running. So you can do some cross training here as long as you're, the exercise modes that you're doing involve the legs, stair climbing, cycling, running, all challenge the peripheral muscular adaptations. That's the mitochondrial and capillary density of the legs. And so it transfers over well to running. You don't need to only just run. There you go. Uh, the other consideration here is similar to what we're talking about with hypertrophy. There uh, is the training load. So you can do certain types of conditioning more often and for higher volumes than other um, uh, types of training uh, modes because they place a lower load on the body. So cycling and swimming, for example, are lower load conditioning options compared to running, uphill sprinting, uh, even uh, things like rucking, for example. And you just think about the actual load placed on the body. And I'm not telling everybody to go out and start swimming, you know, hours upon hours without any previously previous swimming history. Um, same thing with cycling. But it's like if you were trying to pick exercise modes that place a reduced amount of load on the body, say, for instance, if you're a big into strength sports, running may not be the best option for you. Cycling may be a more preferable option. Doesn't mean don't do any running, but it's like maybe the bulk of your conditioning is not running. Maybe it's cycling, rowing, and a little swimming. Although if you're a bad swimmer, <laughs> it's uniquely challenging. It's just, it, it's mainly due to the upper body, uh, the peripheral adaptations in the upper body. If you've yeah. never done any sort of endurance training that involves the upper body, like it is, swimming is uniquely taxing. And that's and kind of and in that end of that particular way with all the technical components, right? I mean, I just think like the most basic thing that when we're teaching kids how to start swimming or 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 getting people's strokes kind of smoothed out, if you don't even know the basic technique of like how to take a breath without yep. expending a ton of energy, like getting your getting your face out of the water, then that can be super hard. But once that smooths out, you know, it gets a lot easier. Which is why you know for the past year or so, I've been able to swim twice a week on top of actually lifting about six times a week, and things have been going just fine and progress has been rolling. So. Yep. What was your best stroke in high school? Freestyle. Your freestyle. I, yep. I, I still lament the fact that my, I mean, my best stroke was the fly, Yeah. but I never got to do it outside of the individual medley because the guy on my team ended up being an Olympic alternate for the fly. <laughs> and he just, I mean, there's no way I'm going to beat him in practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They should they should have just entered it, entered you in the event for, for fun in high school. That, that's you know. what I said. <laughs> I was like, come on. Doesn't dude. matter. That's my, that was my thinking exactly. I was like, dude, this guy, this guy is going, he's an alternate, right? He's got to, he's going to have so many more opportunities to swim the fly. 
compared yeah, to me. Right. <laughs> Just let me do it. Let me let me live. Um, so anyway, the wrap up on this cardiorespiratory fitness element of performance is that for health purposes, none of this probably matters. I think people should be somewhat proficient in all of these things. So higher variety of modes, run, cycle, swim, row, ski erg, arm ergometer, the whole thing, uh, to the extent that you do them and adherence would be the same across the board. Uh, for performance though, the additional consideration would be wh what muscle mass is active, just making sure that you have a good degree of overlap uh, or transference here, and the training load. So picking, picking at least some elements that reduce your training load or allow for fatigue management is probably important here. All right, last component here before we wrap this up is the injury risk and rehab. So from an injury risk standpoint, Dr. Baraki, what do you, what's your view on exercise variation and how this applies? I think that uh, you've mentioned a, a lot of useful concepts so far in the podcast, including this idea of kind of the, the, the training load that's, that's placed on the individual and, and how that relates to their capacity, their ability to tolerate training stress. And so there's this concept called the variability overuse and injury hypothesis. Um, there's, you could just search that specific uh, title and you'll, you'll come up with a fair amount of discussion on it. And so this, this idea tries to relate a few different variables. Uh, it relates number one, the movement variation, which is something we've talked about a lot so far already. Number two is the task demands. So the, you know, let's take an arbitrary example of a, of a task with high amounts of demands being an absolute one rep max deadlift or something like that. And then relating those two variables to the likelihood of an overuse syndrome and overuse injury, whatever you want to call it. And so for individuals, uh, under this kind of model, this hypothesis, which has been studied in a variety of different contexts, um, the greater the task demands are. So for example, if you are, you know, training routinely doing one at one rep at RPE 10 in the deadlift session after session after session with no movement variation, that would be expected to, uh, you know, uh, portend a higher risk of an overuse type syndrome, overuse injury developing compared to either two options, one option being training a task with lesser task demands, right? So if, if you weren't training for the single at RPE 10, but rather maybe you were doing, uh, you know, a single at RPE five or six or something like that, you could afford to do that much more often with that low level of exercise variation. Alternatively, you could train uh, a variety of tasks that each have relatively high task demands, uh, with that higher degree of movement variation. And those would be two ways to mitigate that risk of an overuse type syndrome. But at that intersection of very high task demands, very low movement variation, we expect this risk uh, to increase. Now, of course, injuries are uh, uh, sometimes uh, flukes. As we say, sometimes it be like that. Sometimes things happen. They can be very difficult to predict and risk is probabilistic. So, you know, there might be some people listening who said, well, I trained, I did, you know, max every day for a long time and I didn't get hurt. And it's like, that's, you know, the case for a ton of things that risk is probabilistic. It's not something that is guaranteed binary. Yes. No. Uh, just like a lot of contexts that is relevant these days, for example, around, uh, you know, people's risk of infection, uh, and other things. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not a binary thing. It's probabilities. And so if we're going to aim to mitigate this risk, uh, alter this probability, then we have those strategies, um, at hand. We can, if we want to maintain high task demands, be training quote unquote, relatively hard, 
then uh, under this kind of model, this hypothesis, you would uh, probably want to introduce at least a bit, probably more uh, exercise variation compared to doing uh, very highly uh, 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 training with a high degree of monotony to it. I.e., you're doing the same thing time after time after time, and it's all super, super, super hard session after session after session. I know that I personally had this kind of experience in my early days in powerlifting training where I was doing programs that uh, had a low degree of variation, uh, a high degree of training, monotony, similar exercises, all very hard sets, near failure, um, same rep range, same exercises, you know, multiple sessions in a row or alternating sessions and things like that. And um, as I mentioned, that's kind of where I started to experience some, some issues at the time. Compa contrasted with where my training has evolved um, nowadays, um, including, you know, I'll just give an example, like with my deadlift, which for some reason has had an unusually good streak this past year. Um, and one of the things that I look back on over the past year, what have I been doing? I've been doing, um, fairly heavy deadlift singles actually twice a week, which may take somebody's attention as like, that's, you know, a little bit unusual, but been doing that, been doing, uh, let me think about 10 to 15 work sets. Um, However, one day is all sumo, the other day is all conventional, and the third exposure is fairly light RDLs. And so the task demands are pretty distributed. I have some limited exposure to high task demands, uh, some limited exposure to moderate task demands with like my back off work sets, and then some to low task demands with the RDLs. And additionally, these are all three different exercises. Been able to keep pushing this, you know, session after session for almost over, actually over a year now with uh, very limited needs for, you know, back offs or deloads or, um, you know, injuries, setbacks, things like that. Obviously for now, I mean, that could, that could obviously change any time, but I've been surprised at my ability to tolerate this amount of uh, pulling work alongside squat training, alongside bench training, alongside swimming twice a week and stuff like that. So I think I've just been managing the, the overall training load. And fortunately, so far, it seems to be working well with um, relatively lower risk of these overuse syndromes compared to when I was doing heavier conventional pulling and low bar squatting multiple times a week across all the time. And just you I tended to feel a bit more beat up. Uh, and so that is kind of this overarching hypothesis when it comes to, to injury risk. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that you've, you've had to do this on the back end of your development, meaning that yeah. you started, you know, and developed a fairly high amount of proficiency in the deadlift, for example, or in just the, the big three squat bench deadlift. And then after a series of setbacks, you've had to kind of go do like this, I don't know, adjunctive training to like get back up to speed, uh, and kind of like fill in some gaps that may have been there from your previous training. And so what we prefer is that people would start with a broader, a wider variety of not only exercises, but also loading schemes um, and just task demands. So, yeah, so, so that way don't make our mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we've been both training for a long period of time. And I, I, I would say that our genetic predispositions for strength development are definitively above average. Yeah. Our injury resistance you know, to the extent that those are influenced by biological inputs, definitively above average, um, because we're just not injured all the time, right? Some people, it's like they're made, they're the who's that character, uh, Mr. Glass, you know, <laughs> you know, um, that being said, I, I still think we would have had more success and, and less need for various deloads and, you know, taking time off, not time off training, but time off, you know, actively pursuing our goals here. Had we started out a little bit differently and had a diff a, yeah, a different trajectory that yeah. may all be BS, but that's my, that's my thought. And that's kind yeah. of where I'm at right now. 
Yep. Um, this this does raise the question though: Is there an amount of exercise variety that is too high? The Colonel Sanders meme. These this variety is too damn high. <laughs> like, and I, I think yeah, there's there's two sort of major players here. If the exercise variation is pushed too far, I think that the individual's capacity to adapt is spread too thin, kind of compromising the rate of improvement for specific tasks, assuming there are specific tasks that are actually important and actually need to be accomplished in some sort of timely fashion. Uh, so this is like the argument against CrossFit, right? And again, however you want to define CrossFit, we I did a podcast with Jacob Sipkin on this. Um, yeah, the exercise variety is too high to maximize strength performance, hypertrophy improvements, or cardiorespiratory improvement, you know, car- cardiorespiratory fitness improvement. But the totality of all of those things, so like how strong did you get while improving hypertrophy, while improving cardiorespiratory fitness in this particular setting, I don't know that you could do a better job, <laughs> you know, than using that type of approach. But if those aren't your goals, right, to like equally distribute your performance improvement, uh, across these three things, then yeah, there are better ways to do it. And it's probably going to have reduced variation compared to the Hopper model or that study we referenced earlier where there was 80 different, you know, randomly assigned exercises. I also think if you have people with low amounts of experience programming or, or low, uh, low training history where they can like look back and see historically like how they've done, they may kind of get out into the weeds, you know, picking different exercise varieties and in combinations thereof that are ultimately not productive for them. So in our templates, for example, the earlier or like the first exposure templates that, that we have. So power building one strength one, uh, a lot of our, fir- the f- number one numbered, um, templates either don't have a lot of exercise selection or no exercise selection that the user can sort of generate. And the idea is like, I don't know that it's worthwhile to have you pick your own exercises in this in this context because I'm I'm afraid that you might spend, you know, 3 months on this template and not get the results that you want. So I'm going to give you a helping hand and guide you. Uh if I was working with a person one-on-one, we'd certainly have more conversations about this and kind of a hammer out probably a more individualized plan. That's the that's the point of that. But then as the templates, as you get further on in our sort of template uh, algorithm, if you will, there are way more options, mainly because a person has more experience, more exposure, they can, you know, more accurately kind of uh, pick variations that are likely to help them get the uh, goals that they're seeking. So that's thing one, maybe too much variation, your the capacity to adapt gets spread too thin. Uh, or in certain cases where you're preparing for a competition, a test, or whatever, yeah, you probably want to get more specific. You have less variety. Uh, so if you have a powerlifting meet, uh, or you know, if you're the turkey trot 5K is like the meet the thing that you're preparing for, you know, you you might ditch some of the other modes that you're um, you're 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 doing uh, and and try to get a little more specific. But again, these are like short term. That's a short-term reduction in exercise uh, variety uh, just to sort of maximize uh, your performance um, in a short period of time for that test. Uh, any other cons- – oh, you, the uh, other time where there would be a low amount of variation that you can think of, Austin? Um, low amount of variation outside of just like really firm 
individual personal preferences, although I'm still probably trying to break some of those things just because of all the benefits and all the stuff that we've talked about here so far. Um, really, really, really limited uh, amounts of training time. If somebody's only able to get in, you know, once a week or something like that, sure. uh, obviously there's only so much that you can do in that, in that context to get somebody towards whatever their goal may be, but really outside of that, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and then exercise selection for exercise variety for rehab stuff. I, are you as bad as I am with this? Meaning what that you, you torture that? people? Well, so look, man, if, if somebody, if somebody's had a lot of pain, right. And it, it's, uh, significantly impacting our ability to make, you know, progress. I, I, te- I tend to torture them with our, our, uh, the pain rehab protocols I, I pick, meaning that I pick high rep variations to limit the load, usually with the tempo. And it, it basically allows somebody to work hard, but at a rep scheme that doesn't allow them to load the thing too heavy. It might be a three Oh, Oh tempo RDL for 15s, for example. And they're like, dude, how, I can't even count to 15. I'm like, get a, get a partner, you yeah. know? And, and I feel, I feel bad writing it, <laughs> but I'm like, you're not going to load yourself too heavy. And, 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 you know, we'll get started on it at a, at a good spot. Yes. It certainly does sound like I am quote as bad as you are in that, <laughs> in that realm. And we, we really just conceptualize rehab as training. Uh, this is somewhat of an arbitrary distinction between rehab and training. It is just training just like any other training that is uh, designed around an individual's current abilities, their current tolerance for training, and what we're working towards, their goals. And we're designing an approach, a programming template, whatever the case is, that will take somebody from where they are currently in their individual situation to where they want to be. So in that realm, rehab is training. But I think it's just worth commenting on because, you know, we have lots of folks that we've worked with who are experiencing pain of whatever variety, uh, back pain, knee pain, hip pain, elbow pain, shoulder pain, wherever that wherever the issue is affecting them. And because of their prior training history, because of their beliefs, because of who they've learned from, whatever the case is, a lot of times these individuals might have strong, you know, psychological attachments or emotional attachments to particular movements, maybe There is no exercise in the world that is more important to them than their conventional deadlift. And they have historically looked down upon the sumo deadlift or something like that. And then suddenly they find themselves in a situation where they experience back pain trying to pull a conventional deadlift off the floor, uh, but maybe they have less pain or they're better able to tolerate a sumo deadlift. Well, what are you going to do? We have clients who are remain highly resistant to this kind of thing. They will sometimes not, they'll, 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 uh, you know, will provide the initial prescription and and have these conversations and try to get them going with things that are different or maybe even worse might be unilateral movements. If I want to have them do a single leg RDL, which, you know, if they've been coming from a hardcore black iron gym powerlifting background, like it's humiliating to them to go into that place and do a single leg RDL or something like that, which is, you know, I get some of the barriers to that. I get some of the you know, issues if you're around your friends who are maybe feeling better and they're still lifting heavy and you're not maybe able to tolerate it. There's tons of reasons why there could be resistance or barriers to, to buying into this sort of thing. Um, but the con- more consistent thread that we have also observed is the people who tend to be the most resistant to incorporating and embracing more exercise variation in the course of rehab, their pain experiences that they're going through, uh, particularly as they keep kind of poking the bear, so to speak, doing the same thing that they want to try to be able to do, even though they can't tolerate it that well, it just makes the whole process take longer than it needs to. Um, And their symptoms tend to be worse than they need to be. And once we get them to understand, hey, this is a temporary pullback from doing heavy singles, doubles, triples on these main competition movements, we can set some new PRs, we can set some new 
you know, eight RMs, 10 RMs, 12 RMs, whatever, in these movements that you've never done before. Let's build some psychological momentum. Let's get things desensitized. And then we'll have a plan to transition back from this 300 tempo RDL back towards a, you know, 300 tempo sumo deadlift, 300 tempo conventional deadlift, regular speed block pull, regular speed deadlift off the floor, something like that, whatever the case is, might be a hypothetical progression or something like that. And getting people to buy into this process, um, accept that, hey, this is where I am now. I know that there's some work to do. Um, Some of my maybe perhaps not favorite things are going to be involved to get me there, but it can be tough. There can be a ton of resistance. We we don't even, we're not even always able to get through to everybody on this. Sometimes we've had some clients who said, nah, I don't want to do this. And so they bail and they want to go find somebody perhaps who will tell them more what they want to hear. Um, which can be tough as well on, on both sides, but, uh, that's kind of our approach to, to rehab and, and how we incorporate exercise variation there, um, a way to help keep people feel like they're training, um, provide novel stimuli in a bunch of different ways, build up tissue capacity, build up psychological confidence, um, get people some, some wins and then have a a plan that the person can understand to progress back towards the things they actually want to be able to do. Succinctly and eloquently said. All right, as let's wrap always. this. As always, well, most of the time, unless I ask you like, what, your, what your favorite color is or something. Or like, yeah, then I got nothing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so let's wrap this up. Exercise selection is defined as the movements and their specifics, such as range of motion, tempo, and style. Those should be determined by an individual's goals, their exercise preferences, and the exercise's trainability. The exercise selection should maximize both adherence to the program and fitness adaptations while minimizing the risk of injury. Adherence is likely improved by self-selected exercise type. The ideal amount of exercise variation within a single training phase or over many phases is currently unknown and varies among individuals based on their preferences, training history, training responsiveness, and so on. For individuals training for general health or who are hypertrophy focused, and folks who are new to training, exercise variation should be relatively high as it appears to improve motor learning, reduces injury risk, and improves adherence. During periods of high variation, each movement on each day could be different. Uh, Repetition and loading schemes may also be highly varied during these periods. For those interested in maximal strength performance, we'd recommend uh, repeated exposure to the competition or priority exercise along with a blend of fairly specific exercises for the supplemental and accessory exercise slots. For cardiorespiratory fitness and health, variations should primarily be determined by preferences, accessibility, and training load. And from a performance standpoint, active muscle mass and training load should be uh, considerations. And finally, exercise variation can be reduced for short periods of time, like two to four weeks around a competition, test, or event. During periods of low variation, these prioritized movements may be, may be repeated throughout the training week if desired, and then the repetition and loading scheme variation may also be reduced during these periods. That's exercise variety. What else you got, Baraki? I got nothing else. That's it. All right. So this has been episode 164 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me on this podcast. Again, if you're looking for some new Barbell Medicine swag, some new Barbell Medicine gear, check it out on the website. Link to that in the description below. Also, we have more seminars available for those who want to do these live in-person events. And we'll see you next time here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. Oh, you see what I can see.